You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Rob Phelan, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Have you ever started a business? My wife was more serious than usual. You should do it, she said, a little more strenuously than I was comfortable with. I had mentioned the combined MD-MBA program in passing. I was a second-year medical student, and starting or running a business was the farthest thing from my mind. My wife was insistent. For giving up just a single year, I could graduate with both an MD and an MBA from Kellogg Business School, one of the most prestigious schools in the country, a small cost for such a big achievement. But I was having none of it. Enamored by the dream of becoming a doctor, I had no interest in delaying my meteoric rise to obtaining that all-important MD. Years later, after starting a number of small businesses, I realized she was right. I should have gone to business school. Yet many of us don't. We don't have the time or money or inclination to begin all over again when we start our second act. So what resources are available to us? Who will teach us how to start our own businesses? Rob Phelan is an entrepreneur and high school personal finance teacher in Maryland. He is a certified financial education instructor by NCFE and has also co-created the Choose FI K-12 financial education curriculum. Rob has helped his students form over 60 student businesses, some of which have won recognition at entrepreneurship competitions in Maryland. Rob, welcome to this podcast. Doc G, thank you so much for having me on. Excited to talk about businesses and getting them started. I totally am too. I feel like every person should know the basics about how to start a business. And I feel like that's a funny thing for a doctor to say. I 100% agree. And When you think about the way you hear a lot of your guests talk about personal finance and managing our finances, a lot of them treat our household incomes and our household budgets like a business. So there is a huge amount of crossover between running a household and running a business. Like You have to make sure you are breaking even or better yet, making a profit. You got to make sure that you're planned, you're organized, you're keeping a good level of stock in the house, whatever way you want to think about it. There's a lot of crossover between managing your money and managing a business for sure. And learning how to manage a business is a great way to pick up those life skills. I never thought about it that way, but maybe we're all managing our own little businesses in our lives, but some of us are doing it more effectively than others. And more consciously. You know, some of us are kind of letting the business run itself and we're not even realizing that it's happening. And then some of us are taking a lot of control over what's happening. We're making sure that we're starting to manage the smaller details. So I think most business owners would say that you got to be a lot stricter with your finances when you're managing a business. There is a profit loss column and you want to make sure you're always on the profit side. Like there is no kind of wishy-washy letting things kind of creep up on you. There's no lifestyle inflation when it comes to a business. Like everything's got to be accounted for and it's got to have a plan. 
something that we could all apply to our finances at some point, maybe on varying degrees of intensity, I'd say is the word for that. Yeah. And I love this idea that in financial independence, maybe we've made that change in mental mindset. Maybe those of us who are part of this community actually have started looking at our financial lives in more of a business mindset. And that's part of what financial freedom really is in the end. It's having that goal. It's having the steps in place to make it happen. You've got to have some sort of income and you've got to have some sort of control of your expenses. And whether that is through a small business or through your employment, whatever it is, like there's management that has to be done in order to reach this idea of financial independence for sure. Before we get into your book, The Simple Startup, I feel like we need to go back to the beginning of your professional career. You're in education, you're a teacher. Were you always concentrated on finance or did that come later on? Definitely not. I started my undergrad as a physical education major. So I went to college. I was like, you know what? I want to be a teacher. I don't want to be behind a desk. I want to be outside. I want to be active. And PE teaching just kind of sounded like the best of all worlds. I was going to be working with kids. I wasn't going to be stuck behind a desk until 5 p.m. every day. Like It was going to be a great, great career. And when I got to college, um, the first thing they said was, okay, cool. You're going to become a phys ed major, but we need you to take a second subject as well because you probably will not get employed as a phys ed teacher straight out of school. They are a hard job to get. A lot of people don't leave those jobs very easily. My own school that I currently work in, the only way a PE job comes up is if somebody retires. Like They don't leave to go somewhere else, try something different. So the the amount of times a phys ed job comes up is pretty rare. My college offered us different options for a second subject. You could do English, you could do chemistry, geography. I went to undergrad in Ireland. So the Irish language was an option you could do. And then mathematics was the fifth option. And of the other four, the only one I could take a stab at was uh, probably English. The other uh, chemistry I didn't take to a high level in high school. Geography was definitely not uh, my thing. And then Irish to language, I was like, heck no. Uh, It's a very difficult language to learn. So that left me between math and English. And I was like, you know what? Math sounds like a lot less grading. I'll do math. Wrong reason completely to go into it. But it ended up being that math was the subject that I really love teaching. Phys ed, it wasn't coaching. It's not working with youth sports teams where every kid wants to be there and they're super excited by it. It was hard to manage. You're in a wider open space. So kids can be a little bit more difficult to kind of keep on track. And it was banging your head against a wall sometimes. And I found the, the classroom is where I really excelled and I was able to help kids a lot. And then that transitioned later in my career. So about year five of my career, I got asked to take on this personal finance class that is technically a math class. and At that point, I really started getting in charge of my own finances and learning about this stuff myself. Fell into that rabbit hole of personal finance and financial independence and haven't left it yet. So it was actually a change in your teaching career that pushed you towards that rabbit hole. Is that fair to say? Or were you already kind of searching the internet for personal finance information? I would say a couple of different nudges came at the same time. When my wife and I first met, we were long distance for three years. I was up in Rochester, New York. She was down in Maryland. I was doing grad school and she was working full time. So she was already making a lot of income. She was learning to manage income a lot more than I was. And she had a little bit more of a better upbringing when it came to managing money. So when we eventually kind of moved in together and we started our lives together, she was the financial person in our house. She knew more about money. She was telling me about how the tax system in the US worked, how to put money aside for retirement, for savings, just things that were different from Ireland to the US. And just, I was very naive. Um, in terms of how money worked. And I didn't like that imbalance in our relationship. We like to be balanced in everything that we do. So it was kind of in the back of my mind, okay, you're going to have to learn more about this money thing. Like stop asking her every single time you've got a question, go start learning for yourself. And then our own finances, like we were doing fine. 
not quite paycheck to paycheck. We would get the paycheck, end of the month, the balance was zero. And we weren't uncomfortable in any way, but we weren't saving, we weren't building for a future. As we got married, we kind of realized that we want to do more. So again, that third nudge to start learning more about money. And that's when I really started diving deep into things like Dave Ramsey to get out of debt. And then eventually found podcasts like Choose FI, Afford Anything, Stacking Benjamins, eventually found you guys as well. There's such a great community out there of information. That's where I challenged that intro you had where you said, you know, I, I regret not getting the MBA. I'm like, did you really need it? Can you not find everything you need to know for free out there right now? That's hopefully where our conversation leads. Most of us don't have the time or wherewithal, but maybe not even the interest. One thing we're finding in our community is that with the right techniques, time, and materials, you can learn a lot of those things that an expensive education provides in a much quicker and more frugal manner. Definitely something I want to explore with you. Before we get there, though, personal finance is a far cry from entrepreneurship. Was there a time after you started teaching personal finance that you transitioned into entrepreneurship, or did it just naturally become part of the curriculum? I guess when personal finance turned into financial independence, that's when it really started creeping back in. So, personal finance, you're just managing your money. Financial independence, you've got a goal. There is a number, there's a target you're trying to hit. And when you think about the tenets of financial independence, it is to spend less. So, you know, cut your costs down to invest better. But then the third leg of the stool was to earn more. A lot of us get stuck at that point because we're like, I'm in a salary job. Like I don't really have the potential to earn more. Or if I do, I'm just trading more of my time. Like I'm working overtime and that's not necessarily something I really want to do because I've got other things I want to do with my life. I've got family, I've got hobbies, I've got interests. That led me to the idea that, okay, I'm a teacher my ability to increase my income is very limited. I can do things like I can get more educated. I can take on extra positions in my school, but like there's no real way to move up the salary ladder except to get more experience. So it's just time in the job. Very quickly, I reached the max education. So I'm in the highest salary lane I could be in. So I hit that ceiling very quickly and I turned to entrepreneurship as the way to bring in more income. Now we're talking about your personal life here, but you're also creating this curriculum for students Was there some worry about bringing in concepts like financial independence, which aren't your traditional finance teaching that you would see in a school setting? The problem is we don't see much financial teaching in a school setting at all. Slapping a label of financial independence on it, financial literacy, financial education, personal finance, nobody really seemed to know the difference between them. So it didn't really matter from like adults who were kind of keeping an eye on what was going on. The curriculum I teach, it's technically a math class. So in Maryland, you have to have four math credits to graduate. And you also have to take four years of math. The students that I end up getting are typically either kids who have already achieved four credits of math and they don't really want to go into like AP calculus or AP statistics. So they just need a fourth year of math and they don't even really need to pass the class. They just really have to sit in a math class. And then the other half are kids who are looking for that fourth math credit, but aren't maybe looking to go on to a four-year college. Like maybe they've gotten as far as geometry, algebra two, and they don't want to go any higher math but they don't see themselves pursuing a four-year degree that requires a high level of math. So this is like that final class that a lot of kids take. I have a lot of leeway in how I approach it. You're supposed to be teaching financial literacy topics with um, math concepts brought in as well. And just naturally, a lot of financial topics have a little bit of math in there. So it was a very easy class to take on. There was no real structure in place for what I had to do. There was no, you have to cover X, Y, and Z. So it was kind of like, all right, I started piecing together the best curriculums I could find out there. There was different ideas. I started listening to the podcast. You know, like, that's a great idea. I want to teach about that. There was no existing curriculum that worked for me. So that's when I said, all right, choose if I, I want to create this thing. 
are you interested in partnering with me? Can I help you guys out with this? And thankfully they were like, yes, come on board. We're thinking the exact same thing. That's when I was able to jump on board with them and really start creating this K through 12 financial literacy curriculum with two other people. It is a fantastic curriculum. You know, financial independence is the kind of lens through which we're viewing this financial literacy concept. So all of our lessons are about the financial literacy. So learning about how money works, but then also the mindset and behaviors that you know have to go with a financial independence kind of journey. One thing I've realized is that as people become adults and you start talking about both financial independence and entrepreneurship, they feel quite a bit of anxiety. I'm wondering, are kids a little bit more open to these lessons? Are they more likely to run with them as opposed to what adults do is we tend to try to pick apart every reason why it won't work? As a math teacher, I'm faced with this problem every day where kids come to me and say, you know what? My parents weren't math people. I just don't have this math gene. I can't do it. So like you get this limiting belief, this limiting mindset kind of slapped on them from the very start. And I think money kind of runs the same way that if you have parents spreading this message that, you know what, we're never going to be rich because of X, Y, Z, either our income's too low. We don't have the skills. We didn't have the the wealthy parents. Um, we don't have a trust fund. We didn't win the lottery. Like whatever the limiting mindset is, whatever locus of control they're putting on it, kids will come in often with the same sort of mindset. So the first thing that I end up trying to do is break that down and be like, you know what? That's a limiting belief on your part. What does a growth mindset look like in this scenario? And then immediately trying to show them how easy it can be, particularly for that age group. If we start at 16, 17, 18, like the journey to financial independence becomes a lot easier because we know time is our best friend. I'd like to use this idea of limiting beliefs to springboard into a conversation about your new book, The Simple Startup. Let's start with the name. Is there anything simple about entrepreneurship? It's an audacious name, The Simple Startup. Well, like if I asked you, what is an entrepreneur? What would you say? I'd say a person who builds and creates companies. Does it have to be a big company? No. Like what would be the simplest company you can think of? Simplest company I could think of is a high school student or even younger who decides that they want to make a little extra money and starts a car wash. Could you start that today? Probably. Entrepreneurship is this big, scary idea for so many people. And I think getting past that idea that takes somebody really special to be an entrepreneur is something that we really want to start with. Entrepreneurship is a mindset. It's looking at a problem and then envisioning what a solution to that might look like. So you had Alan Donegan on your podcast recently, and you know I love Alan. Alan gave me a lot of help and ideas for the workbook. I think we approach entrepreneurship kind of the same way that anybody can do this. It doesn't take a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of skills. It can be as small or as big as you want, but just kind of exercising that muscle of problem solving, finding pain points, thinking of how, what solutions would look like. That's really what we're trying to do. You mentioned like car washes, lemonade stands, baking cookies, selling them, like that sort of thing. Like you can start at a very young age and start kind of flexing this muscle a little bit. The problem you're trying to solve should have some sort of monetary reward, but it doesn't necessarily have to. You can still solve a problem as a nonprofit and say like, you know what, I'm just going to find a way to solve this and maybe fund myself to be able to do that. It seems like both Alan Donegan of the Pop-Up Business School and you with the Simple Startup do something that I feel has been difficult for people trying to start businesses in the past, which is you guys put everything together in a nice package all in one place. Up to this point, has it been hard to find a thorough guide to starting businesses? Yes, and particularly for a simple business. The Simple Startup was born because the pain point for me 
was that there was nothing out there already that met all the criteria that I wanted. I wanted to be able to teach my students how to start a business in about five weeks. So five weeks of class time, I wanted them to come up with an idea, develop the idea, start a business, start marketing it, start selling it, start tracking their finances, looking for plans for growth. And it all had to be done in five weeks. So it's a very compact time period. Like we're not trying to build Apple. We're not trying to build Microsoft. We're trying to build like a very small business where they can learn all of these life lessons that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And the reason for that is I went through this process when I was in high school. So I had a business teacher who did a, it was called a mini company project for him. And it was part of an Irish initiative by Enterprise Ireland. So they offered schools the chances to, you know, get students, start businesses, basically pick the top business to represent your school. It goes into a regional competition. It goes into a national competition. And eventually they have a national winner. Our business teacher was really into this. Like he had his own businesses outside of school. He walked the walk sort of thing. Um, He wasn't just talk. And I think we all respected him for that. So he was the wealth of knowledge as opposed to like a textbook or workbook. He was coming up with everything on his own. So I took a lot of those lessons I learned from there. And I was like, okay, I'm going to create a guidebook for teachers to use that will make this idea of entrepreneurship less scary. Any teacher could pick this up. The instructor manual will walk you through like, here are the prompts you should be doing. Here's what students will probably stumble on. Here's what questions you can ask. Here are some useful websites you can point kids to, to kind of help them overcome this particular hurdle in their business. And the hardest part is getting off of paper and into the real world. You can come up with a great business idea. You can say, yeah, I think people will like this. Here's what I would do. Here's how much I would charge for it. And we don't get past the paper model of it. And a lot of schools will write the business plan or something like that, but they'll never actually get up and start selling. So the idea here was that we want kids to actually start selling. The sales skills that go with this are super important. As soon as you ask somebody to part with their money, that's when you know whether you've got a good idea or not. So it can sound great on paper and everyone will tell you it's the most amazing thing ever. But until you ask them to give you the money in their wallet, you don't really know if you've got a good idea or not. At the beginning of this answer, you mentioned that there weren't a lot of good resources that helped people get over the pain points that you are most interested in. What do you think is the major pain point that is holding people back in starting a business? We go back to what you said at the beginning of the podcast. I didn't get my MBA. I don't have a certification in running businesses. I don't have the knowledge to do this. For some reason, we think that there must be some sort of certification behind us that we need somebody else's permission to say, okay, now you're ready to go start a business. You've got the skills you need. We don't feel that same, well, maybe I'm not sure if, if the average person feels this way, but when we talk about personal finance, there's no college diploma in personal finance per se. Like you learn this stuff yourself. A lot of us feel a lot more, I think, willing to go learn from things like podcasts when it comes to personal finance. And I guess the belief I wanted to challenge was why can't we do the same thing for entrepreneurship? Why do you feel like you need some sort of certification behind you to be able to do this? The skills are out there. Like a lot of us have that problem solving kind of mindset already. If not, it's a muscle you can flex. Like you start looking for pain points in everyday life and you start thinking like, what would that solution look like? You write it down maybe. And then eventually you've got 20, 30, 50 business ideas. And you're like, all right, what are the ones that are maybe easiest to start? What am I most passionate about? What could be started for the least amount of money or a $0 startup as Alan tries to push? You just, you start, you expect that failure will happen. Like not every business you do is going to be the most amazing thing in the world. I've started and closed a couple of different businesses because like, yeah, they were, they were fun to do. They weren't as profitable as I thought they were going to be. I've probably started like six different websites at this point and none of them took off. So I was like, okay, you know what? Shut it down. I'm not going to keep paying for hosting when it's not working and just try something different. 
I want to drill down on these pain points a little more. You mentioned certification is a pain point, and maybe we're looking for certifications that aren't necessary. But I want to turn that around a little bit. Are there people who should be getting an MBA? Are there people who come and say, I want to start a business? And you'd look at them and said, you know what, for what you're looking for, you really need to go back to school. Having not got an MBA behind like my own name, I don't know exactly the full like gamut of what comes in an MBA. But I think if someone's approaching me about starting a business, it's usually because they have never done anything before in the business world. So I would say start with a simple startup, like let's dip our toes in the water here. Can you start something small, local to you, or like online, that's not a huge financial risk, and you can learn all the skills you need to. And if you want to go bigger, you're talking about taking on like 20, 30, 40 employees, you want to start selling on a national basis, got a product that maybe liability is an issue. Like maybe that's the time to say, okay, maybe think about getting an MBA behind you or hiring somebody who has it. Like you can always hire in the skills that you don't have or the qualifications you don't have. You don't necessarily have to do it yourself. You mentioned Alan Donegan, and it reminds me of another pain point. He's big on this idea that we get caught up on funding. And you mentioned his zero startup business plan. There's lots of talk out there about lean startups. Should funding be a hurdle for us? Are you a big fan of trying to go lean when you begin? Definitely when we begin going lean, yes. So when I am doing the Simple Starter Project with high school students, the assumption is that there is no funding available. We are looking for things that we can borrow, things that we can use temporarily. Can we get people to pay for the product ahead of time so that we can fund the actual production of the product or service? Yeah, lots of different ways that you can fund the business organically so you're not borrowing money and then having to pay it back. Um, That is a huge idea for us in the Simple Startup. Yeah, you don't want money to be a barrier to entry for anybody. That's a big idea for us that you can start from nothing. If you have funding available, cool. You know, maybe you want to put $100 into website hosting and you've got it to do that and you want to jump straight in there. Great. If not, maybe just try start selling your product, raise that first $100 and then build your website. You don't have to have like a fully polished, beautiful storefront on day one. Like you can always build up to that and I think that was an idea that I took from my business teacher. And then I heard again from Alan when he was on the Choose a Five podcast. And I was like, you know what? They're absolutely right. Like it doesn't have to be this big funding project that's needed. It can be, but you probably want the simple startup skills behind you before you start jumping into something that big. Another almost silly sounding pain point, but one I often see nonetheless is I can't tell you how many people get caught up on this idea of writing out a formal business plan. In fact, I've seen more people quit their startups at that business plan point than anywhere else. Is forming a business plan supposed to be such a complicated thing? It's a daunting experience and it's an annoying one because you're trying to almost script what an entire business is going to look like from start to finish and you haven't even started yet. When we're doing it in the simple startup, before you even think about a business plan, you do what's called a business snapshot or a business canvas model is what the official model is. You're basically just saying, okay, well, let me just kind of detail a little bit more about what I think my business idea might look like. Who are the people that I need to work with in terms of buying from or selling to What's my unique selling point going to look like? What are my potential costs? What am I going to sell things for? Just roughly, what do I think a price point might be in my head? Based on experience, based on what you think the pain points are, like you're kind of jotting down those ideas. And then from there, you start. You heard that idea in the lean startup a lot. You build the plane as you're flying it sort of thing. Like So you, you come up with a very basic idea. You build it. You try and sell it. You see what the feedback is. You reiterate. You go out again. And you just keep doing that over and over again. 
you really only need a business plan if you are going to approach a bank or an investor for a lot of money. Like that's where they want to really know the ins and outs of your business. We do a business plan in the simple startup because that is going to be the product that they are providing to a potential judge. So we do a Shark Tank style competition for our county. The other one I offer for users of the book is like a business expo or business fair kind of idea. So that if a judge was coming around and they wanted to know a lot about your business and you weren't there to pitch it, or they wanted a bit more detail about your finances, there'd be something they could pick up and look at. But in terms of getting your business started, like that's one of the last things that the kids are going to do. They're going to start their business. They're going to do the market research. They're going to reiterate. They're going to change. They're going to look for feedback from consumers and say, okay, what do they really want? What am I not providing? Do I need to change who my target market is? And then they just keep building, building, building until they feel like they've got a good level of product or service. This is our sweet spot. Let's keep going now. A moment ago, you nonchalantly said, first you come up with an idea and then you moved on. But I see a lot of people spending a huge amount of time trying to generate the right idea for a business. Should we be spending so much time on that? And I would follow that up by saying, what's more important, the idea or the execution? I would say this was my big stumbling block as well when I first started dipping my toes into entrepreneurship. And I remember in that high school class I sat in when we were given this task of starting a business, the hardest part was just like, well, what's the idea going to be? It's got to be this amazing, life-changing invention. Like nobody's ever done this before. And really the exercise is kind of what I did with you. Is like, what's the simplest business you can think of? And straight away you came up with car wash. Okay, go do it. That'll make you money. Absolutely. So for kids, I asked them to list as many different business ideas as they can. And we start with things like, well, what are your strengths? And if you can't think of what your strengths are, ask people, ask your friends, ask your family, what do you think I'm good at? And let them list some things for you. Think about like what do people around you ask you for help with? So if someone's asking you for help with something, you are a perceived expert in that area. You may not think that you're an expert in it. There's probably somebody smarter or better than you out there at this particular thing. But in terms of your local group, your community, like you are the perceived expert in that area. So that is something that you could potentially monetize. What do you like to do with your free time? If you're passionate about business, you're more likely to see it out, stay involved in it. And you can find the target market in a lot of cases for these things. Like there is that advice of like, you know, follow your passions as opposed to follow the money. And I think it is a balance there. You want to make sure that your passion is something that you can approach in a way that you could monetize it eventually. What I ask kids to do is what are your strengths? What are the pain points you see out there? And then try and find some sort of hybrid that your strengths could solve a pain point. And then the final exercise is we ask kids to rank every idea they do based on how easy it is to start and then how excited they are about it. And we're looking for the one that they are most excited about that is also the easiest to start. And that's the business you start with. I think sometimes we forget that there are different types of founders out there. Some founders are exceedingly passionate about the idea they're pursuing. But I would say that at least 50% of founders are passionate about the idea of starting a business itself and not necessarily the ins and outs of what the business does. Is that a fair statement? I would say so. Of the businesses I've started, I did a tutoring business. I like teaching. I wouldn't say tutoring was my passion in this world, but I knew that there was a demand for a math tutor in my area. So I was like, you know what? I'll do a tutoring business. It's not the most exciting thing in the world to me, but hey, it makes money and it has like almost a $0 startup cost. I was able to get the word out there very cheaply that I was doing this, build up a client base, and then word of mouth, I was getting more and more people signing up for this. That's it. That's my business right there. First business done. I've stopped doing that since then because it was just a basic trade-off of my time for money, and I wanted to try other things out. 
I just stopped tutoring this year. Um, my son was born six months ago, so I wanted to stop giving him my evenings. Instead, I was like, okay, what else could I do? The Simple Startup was something that I really wanted to work on, and I devoted most of my summer to developing that, iterating it. And then this is my current business, like what I'm currently focused on, getting this out there in the hands of teachers. And now I'm teaching it in my classes as well. So getting to enjoy the fruits of the labor at the moment. The next business idea could be anywhere. Like I'm not waiting for this unicorn idea to come up. There's always problems out there. I have a list of my phone of just problems I come across on a daily basis. Okay, yeah, I could solve that. Is it something now that I'm excited about? Is it easy to start? And if I can find one that ticks both those boxes, I'll probably give it a go. Rob, I feel like we start calling a business a business when the first sale is made. Do we underplay the importance of sales in the creation of businesses? We underplay the importance. And then I think a lot of people, that is another pain point stumbling block for people. They're like, oh, I don't like selling. I don't want to talk to people in that way. I think it's CD. It's just a bad word association with like sales. No offense to car salesmen, but like the car salesman who's trying to sell you a piece of junk, they're really trying to persuade you to do it. Sales is just about communication with people, that you are communicating that there is value in whatever your product is and it will solve their problem. Or that you create the need for it. You're saying like, you know, I've got such a good product, you're going to want this. And sales can be whatever you want it to be. Like you can, you can just post an ad online and you're done with sales. Like you don't necessarily have to be on the phone talking face to face with people. I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. You don't have to be in a storefront and convincing every person that comes up to you, like you should be buying my product. A lot of times you can just post an advertisement somewhere and that's it, you're done. Or you've created such a good product that it will sell itself. I sell teaching resources on Teachers Pay Teachers and there is no sales involved on my end. I literally make the product, I put a pretty cover on it, post online, and then if somebody wants it, they find it, they buy it. There's nothing else on my end that I have to do. It hits me that social media has probably changed the face of sales and branding and marketing. Do you think it makes life easier or harder for the new entrepreneur? Both. It opens up so many more avenues to connect with people and get your product in front of them. There's just new ways that you can market now. So you have the ability to put pictures of your product, videos of your products, you can pay for advertising that can just pop up in people's news feeds. But then you've also got all these different channels that you could potentially start thinking about. I think it's important to focus on one or two of them to begin with. You don't have to do all of the social media channels. For me, I focus mostly on Pinterest because that's where a lot of teachers spend their time and mostly Facebook. Pinterest and Facebook, I think, are where a lot of teachers are spending their time. They're looking for pages to follow. They're looking for ideas for resources. And that leads them to a lot of my teacher content that they can purchase. Whereas Instagram probably wouldn't have a lot of value for me. Twitter, when I survey a lot of teachers, like not a lot of them are on Twitter and then start going down through the other social medias like Snapchat or TikTok. There's very few teachers on that. So why would I bother with it? Whereas a student business might be like, all right, well, most of my friends are on Snapchat and TikTok. Like that's where I want to get my products showcased so that kids will see it and they will potentially buy it. So let's try to put the simple startup in its proper place in our community. Who do you think is the audience for this book? So when I started, my target market for this was teachers. And it was teachers who maybe were in math, social studies, business, independent living, careers and college, whatever the class is where you're trying to talk about developing life skills or business skills. And there was applications to other areas like, you know, math, there is a bit of a crossover here. Like I used to do very basic entrepreneurship projects with my algebra students because we were talking about systems of equations and how that happens with profit and loss. And then I realized very quickly that, you know what, there's actually another market out here, and that is 
adults themselves who are interested in starting a business and want a self-guided workbook on how to do this. And then parents who are really interested in doing something like this with their kids. We've realized that parents want to pick up this book because they've got a young teen at home. They're not getting it in school. The teacher is maybe not picking this up or the school is not, but they want their kids to start a business, whether it's for this coming summer, whether it's something they want to do in the background to help pay for college. This is a self-guided workbook. Like you can hand this to somebody and say, you know what, everything you need is in here to get your simple startup off the ground. And it's something that is not going to take a lot of money. It's not going to take a huge amount of time. And it should be profitable if you go through all the steps. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago. And I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 
And do you see the Simple Startup as a standalone solution or are there other resources to be used with it? Could be a solution on its own, but the more you surround it with additional content, voices, people, the better it's going to be. So like if you are approaching this with a small group of three versus an individual, like you'll get different ideas, you'll get different experiences, you can share the workload a little bit. If you include this in a classroom where you now have a teacher who has the teacher workbook as well, or a parent who is able to ask you the questions that you need to really start developing your ideas or shaping your business, like that will help as well. If you're surrounding it with podcasts, one that I really love is Smart Passive Income with Pat Flynn or the Tim Ferriss show, really good podcast challenging how you are running your business and new ideas that you could bring into it to make it better. So let's talk a little bit about your partnership with Choose FI Publishing. We mentioned this a little bit at the outset of the show, but I think it's worth talking about again, why the financial independence ecosystem to talk about business building. Choose FI Publishing was a really fortunate set of events. I had started working with them on the curriculum and I had this book idea in my head and I just kind of started thinking, I'm building this resource, I'm using it with my kids, but I think it could be a book. It's something that I want to get out there to other people. Teachers Pay Teachers was not the appropriate place for it. It's just too big to be considered like a resource that other people would buy. And the physical book is, I think, more useful than a digital product. So I started reaching out to people who I knew had already published. Like I reached out to Grant Sabatier and I said, I'm interested in doing this thing. What advice do you have for me? And I think his was a little different because he went through a traditional publisher and I think had a bit more fame recognition behind his name before he started that. But he had some great advice and, you know, places I could start. I reached out to the team at Choose a Five. I was like, do you guys know anybody, anything that I could do? And as it turned out, they were also thinking the same lines. We want to start a publishing branch. They were bringing out their own book, the Choose a Five book. And then like, you know what, we want to start publishing other books in the space and entrepreneurship definitely fits in that FI model of earn more. The stars align really nicely. I tell my students this a lot of time. Luck is a thing, but it's almost like you imagine luck like a rectangle, like the area of the rectangle is luck and one side is preparation and the other side's opportunity. And the more you increase those two, you prepare more, you pursue opportunities, the larger your luck is going to be. Because if you're not putting yourself out there, if you're not doing the work in the background, you're not going to find these lucky breaks. And I think a lot of us kind of feel that way that because we're pursuing five, when big opportunities come now, we have the time space or the money space to go pursue these things. We end up having more luck as we go. Opportunities keep coming. We end up getting to this path to five much faster as a result. And how important do you think entrepreneurship is in the path to financial independence? It's one of the pathways you can take. It doesn't have to be there. It's kind of the way we talk about the financial independence journey. There are so many different pathways you can take. There are so many different levers you can pull. And entrepreneurship is just one of those ways that you could potentially increase an income. It can be a small side hustle to supplement a main salary. That's how I treat entrepreneurship at the moment. It's about 20% of my net income, whereas my salary still provides the majority of it. For some people, they reach a tipping point where their side income suddenly becomes more than their main income. Like, you know what? I want to pursue that full-time. So they make the switch over. And then for some people, it's like, this is a great skill to learn. I apply this to my own finances. So this entrepreneurship idea to my household and run it a bit more tight ship like a, would a business and suddenly there's excess money for investing. I think it's a very useful tool in anyone's tool belt for getting to financial independence, but it's not the only tool. Many people write about entrepreneurship, but very few actually get granular enough to make a workbook. Did you always know you wanted it to be a workbook? Yes. When I teach math, I feel like I was in a unique position to provide this product. When I was in high school, I didn't like math. So I ended up being a math teacher, but I didn't really particularly like math very much. I struggled with it. I had to work really hard to get my B, 
So I wasn't an A student. I think when I went to college and things started clicking a little bit more, I think that made me 10 times the teacher as somebody who maybe cruised through high school math. Like, yeah, you know, I love this. This is really easy. I'm going to do this in college. College wasn't a challenge. And then they start teaching and they struggle to relate to kids because they never had to actually struggle with it themselves. I wasn't born an entrepreneur and I'm holding quotation marks up at the moment. It's an idea. It's a muscle that I had to develop myself. And then it put me in the position where I can describe how to do this for somebody else because I went from not doing it to suddenly having this mentality mindset and teaching others how to do it. So I teach students every single year. I get better and better at it. Every year I do it, I start recognizing what the stumbling blocks are going to be, the pain points, the reasons that kids are going to throw up that they can't do this. And I made sure all of that made it into the workbook so that it was coaxing the hesitant kid through at first, the one who's really excited, enthusiastic, like there was lots of prompts for them to start really polishing their idea off. Like it's supposed to meet all needs as much as possible, as much as one can do. So it's kind of like a one size fits all, but at the same time, unique enough to different people as well. If you looked at the class of successful entrepreneurs, there are probably a lot more B and C students than there are A and B students. I think so. Like an entrepreneur is like somebody who sometimes challenges the conventional thinking. If we looked at the education system and said, you know what, there is a big problem here. What's the solution to this problem? Maybe it isn't getting an A. Maybe it is putting our efforts into something else. You know, it's one way to do it. Like if you want to reduce the cost of college, like getting straight A's is one way to do it. Or you can start running your own side hustle and developing side income and just pay your way through college. I find kids that approach it a little bit differently often do quite well. My uncle was an entrepreneur and reached millionaire status, and he was a high school dropout at 16. A very different way of looking at life, and he just wanted to work hard, and he was able to apply those life lessons to running a successful business. So our budding entrepreneur just finishes the simple startup. They've been going through the workbook and following all of the instructions. Are they now done? Have they got a successful business? Are they on their way? They can be. So they can say, you know what? I've, I've gone through the exercise. I've started a business. I've made profit. I'm going to shut it down now. I've reached the end of this project, you know, five weeks or seven weeks, whatever it is, is up. So a lot of my students are like that. They're like, you know what? We're done. Brush our hands of it onto the next thing. And then some are like, you know what? I've got a business here. I've got something that can make me money. It doesn't take a huge amount of effort on my part. And they continue on with it. So I have some students of mine who have gone on to college and they started a dropshipping business while in high school. They were buying these hats and sunglasses and like just random stuff from China, made a Shopify store, started dropshipping it to their friends and friends of friends. And yeah, they, they made like a couple hundred dollars in profit in their senior year of high school. And then they went to college and like, well, it really costs nothing to keep this going. People buy, it automatically dropships from the manufacturer. Like, why wouldn't I keep it going? And they've emailed me to say, you know, business is still going great. It's not booming. It's not expanding. It's not going to like change the change their lives, but it's paying for college right now. So happy days. This one girl in particular, she started with me as a freshman in math class, and she was all about wanting to become a mechanic, just loved working with her hands, loved working with machinery, was just going to finish school and go straight into becoming a mechanic. And she took this class with me, this personal finance class as a senior, and we did this project. And by the end, she was like, you know what? I want to own my own auto shop. I want to be the one running the business. I can go bigger with this. I can do better with this. And she's in school at the moment now for ag business. So she's learning about the business of running like an agricultural machinery repair shop sort of thing is what her goal is. I just thought that was a fantastic changing moment where she didn't keep the business going that she did in high school, but she got that bug for, you know what? I think this is something I could do. So the idea is by the time you get through the workbook, if you're following through with it, you should have a viable business going. Yep. Or you say, you know what? I'm bored of this one. I want to do something different. I go back to the start of the workbook and I start again. 
condense it down for me? Obviously, if we asked you, Rob Phelan, how do I start a successful business? What do I do? One of your first things would be, well, go buy the simple startup. Are there any other general words of wisdom to the new entrepreneur that we can put out there to get them started in the right direction? I would say start opening your eyes, start opening your ears, just start listening and watching people. What are they complaining about on a regular basis? Where are you seeing people struggle? Where's the anger? Where's the concern? And just start writing these problems down and then you know, go through the exercise of, well, what might a solution to this look like? Again, write your solution down. You might have, <laughs> if you really start listening, you could come up with a hundred of these every single day. I know in school, like all I hear is people complaining sometimes now because that's what I'm listening for. You then you go back to your ideas and you go through that exercise. Okay, what's easy to start? What am I really excited about? Maybe tick two or three of those off and then just pick one. It doesn't have to be this big stumbling block of I need the idea, the one. It can be any idea. Start it, go through the exercise, start building your skills. Every business should teach you something new. You're learning either how to make a website, you're learning about email marketing, you're learning how to sell to somebody. And then so every time you go through and do a new business, you've already got that skill, you add something new. You could just keep doing this with little small businesses and you would dramatically increase your skills, which makes you more employable. It makes you more likely to be able to jump on that big opportunity. It's that kind of preparation side of the square. You know, I just think there's so many benefits to going through the exercise of starting a business, even if entrepreneurship is not your passion and future. I'm definitely getting this from you and I got it from Alan too, is that both creativity and business building are iterative processes, which means you have to keep on flexing those muscles over and over again. Sometimes you have success, sometimes you don't, but the continuous drive and attempts to do it are what eventually build into a skill set. If you keep on making small improvements the product you end up with is a lot better than you thought it would be at the start. So tell me as of today, Rob, what are the businesses you personally are involved with and which ones are maybe coming up on the horizon? Currently running at the moment, we have the Simple Startup book, the Chooseify curriculum, while not necessarily a business, it takes up as much time as a business does. It started as a volunteer effort and then eventually I got hired by Chooseify to keep going with this. It is providing this free curriculum that any teacher can pick up and use in their school. So we're really trying to promote that at the moment, get the word out there. And I think for me, it's almost like it's a nonprofit business in my end, sort of. It's never going to make me a ton of money. It's a free product, but I'm so passionate about spreading this idea of financial literacy and financial independence to kids that it's worth every you know, second of my time to put it in there. I run a Teachers Pay Teacher store. So these were the book and the Teachers Pay Teacher Store were my efforts at creating passive income. In both cases, I've created a product. And then once the product is created, it's there forever. And all it takes is a little bit of promotion to keep the wheel spinning and try and you know, eventually keep bringing income from it. And that's kind of it. I cut down a lot at the moment because like I said, I have a six month old at home and raising him is now another business. Uh, it's a part of my time that I don't want to give up. So I'm like devoting as much of my time to that as I can. And my wife as well. Like we have a great family and I want to make sure it stays great. At this point of the conversation, I usually ask you what's up next in your life, but clearly what's up next is running after a toddler soon. Because oh my goodness. Yeah. Months, you only have, have a little time left before you're running after them throughout the house. So, I mean, what's up next for me, I would love to take the simple startup and turn it into an online course for adults. So if your medium of choice is not a workbook, if you would prefer an online course, like I would like to be able to offer that. I don't think a podcast is quite the medium I want. A blog, probably not either. I think an online course is what I'd like to pursue next. And I think that's a cool skill set to be able to pick up. I don't know how to make an online course yet, but it shouldn't be a big stretch from what I'm able to do already. So that's going to be my next targeted skill set. 
I was about to say the skills you've already developed with all the businesses you started, my bet is it will not be a huge leap. And so if people are interested in the simple startup or what you were doing, where can they find you online? So the website where you can find the book, there's a free preview of the first five chapters as well. That is at thesimplestartup.com. And if you are interested in the Chooseify curriculum, you can find that at chooseify.com forward slash K12. And I was lucky enough to get a manuscript of The Simple Startup from Rob. And there is a really simple, straightforward, but yet very granular and specific template for starting a business. And so there's a lot of great information there that can take what I would really say is the business novice and take them through the process of creating a real business. So it's very worth your time. I want to do thank Rob Phelan. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast. Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So we're back with Brenda Almost. Brenda was on an episode previously of the What's Up Next podcast. We now know it's called the Earn and Invest podcast. And Brenda and I were lucky enough to catch up this weekend at the Economy Conference in Cincinnati. Brenda, when did you buy your tickets originally? Was it months ago? It was months ago. It was back in the fall. I think I first saw it posted on Instagram and then... I heard people talking about it on Twitter and there were early bird tickets. So always one to save a buck. I bought the early bird ticket. <laughs> and this is not close for you. What drove you to decide to come to economy? Well, I'd never been to Cincinnati and I always like to have a good excuse to go to a new place. I figured that a lot of the people that I knew from Twitter and from other social media places were going to be there. And so I wanted to meet them in person. Are you a big conference goer? I'm not, actually. Well, I guess I started this year after I went to Camp FI, and I was really encouraged, and I really liked it. And so I thought this would be another way to meet people who are on the same path. Did you find this to be a very different experience than Camp FI? Camp FI is a little bit more of a small setting. You have 50 or 60 people. Did this feel very different? Yes, it was very different. There were a, there were a couple hundred people, I think, and there wasn't as much one-on-one -on -one time with people, but I still got to have quality time with the people that I wanted to meet in person. And it was good to see a big group like that because sometimes you think, oh, it's just this very small niche of people. And to see a couple hundred was encouraging. In a lot of ways, economy somewhat reminded me of a TED conference. Yeah. The speakers were maybe shorter, 20 to 30 minutes. And as opposed to the kind of didactic that you get in some types of conferences, this was a lot more lectures and talks. Uh, did you like that format? 
I did. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting it to be a little bit more interactive, but I did like that they were short and sweet. It never felt like a lecture. And I felt like the speakers got their point across pretty quickly and you knew what they were going to be about. But the format was good for a one-day presentation. And I actually heard a couple people say like, I'm glad it was just one day because if it's more than one day, I just kind of zone out or like it's too much information overload. And there were some breakout group sessions. Did you go to one of the groups in the middle of the day? I think there was a two-hour period where various sessions were open, which is a little bit more of a group's discussion format. Right. And maybe that's why I felt that there wasn't that aspect because I actually went to the Playing With Fire documentary showing because I hadn't seen it yet. Uh, What did you think? I liked it. I liked it. It was a practical application of the fire movement in a couple that is kind of like the stereotypical American couple with all the stuff and all the money and yet no time. (laughs) Speaking of prototypical couple, one of the things that amazed me about the Economy Conference is the speakers and a lot of the participants were not your typical Caucasian male engineer, financial independence and personal finance stereotypes. There really were a lot of different types of people there. That's true. I appreciated that very much because I'm a Latina and I don't meet a lot of other Latinas in the fire movement. And so it was encouraging to see uh, Natalie Torres Haddad and Jackie, both who are Latinas and African-American. And so it was nice to feel some representation. I think Diana Miriam was very thoughtful about what types of speakers she had uh, because Mm -hmm. she really felt like the financial independence movement was a very varied and diverse movement. And sometimes it's hard to see that. I've become more and more aware of that as I'm podcasting, that if you open up your lens of focus a little bit, you see that there really are almost every sort of person out there who's interested in managing their money better and finding some sense of freedom away from personal finances. So I thought she did a really good job of capturing that. Was there anything specifically that surprised you about the conference? The diversity, uh, how many people showed up? Uh, I was impressed by the turnout. Yeah, it was bigger than you would have thought, right? Yeah, and it was actually, like, she went a lot bigger than I thought she would. The venue was really big. It was really well decorated. There was a lot of stuff with the Economy logo, down to the little footprint stickers, and just, like, a lot of attention to detail that had I started my own conference like the first year, I probably wouldn't have gone in that direction, but it was just so thoughtful and it went a long way. I think, you know, even like the after party, she just did such a good job with the venue and the band and just creating a good ambiance for people to talk. And it's so nice to be able to be around people who are open about finances. (laughs) It was like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. People who aren't there would be surprised at how professional it was. It was a beautiful stage. She had Mm -hmm. her own lighting people. She had a stage manager. She had a DJ. Kind of an insider view. We as the speakers came the day before and did a five and a half hour rehearsal. And we didn't even go through our talks. The rehearsal was all about transitions to make sure that the music was right, that the microphones were right that all of the pieces were in place, it was fairly exhaustive. You wouldn't have known that as an attendee, but as one of the speakers, 
I will tell you that there was an incredibly large amount of thought that went into making it look and feel seamless. So this was not your hastily thrown together production. This was a well-orchestrated event. And from the inside, it certainly felt like that. And I bet from the audience too, it, things probably felt like they really went together well. They did, yeah. Anything specifically you learned from the speakers that you're taking home with you? Anything that really stuck in your mind? I don't have student loans, but I liked seeing the student loan planner presentation just because I can at least offer that link to people that I know that have student loans and having a master's degree. I know lots of people that have student loans. (laughs) I really liked Jackie's presentation and how she didn't really come across the fire movement until late in her 30s and yet still graduated, still fired, you know, still became financially independent at 47 and then retired at 49, which is like super encouraging because I'm start I started at 27, you know, and I'm like and sometimes I feel like 45 is far away, but I'm like wow, she did it in like 10 years or less. That's incredible. You know, and she wasn't making six figures. So that was awesome. And then it was really great to meet Julian and Kirsten Saunders. I got to talk to them a little bit. We got to talk about, you know, minorities in the fire movement and how a lot of us, we didn't grow up with these principles. And so we're learning them in our adulthood. And we're not just learning personal finance, but we're going a little bit further and pursuing fire. And I was really impressed by Julian's desire to see more Black millionaires. So to go through some of the things you said, so for the student loans, that was Travis Hornsby. And if any of you guys know him, sometimes he seems quiet and mild-mannered when you see him out socially. But when he gets up to give a talk, he is just out there and exuberant and excited by the conversation. And so he was a lot of fun and he was incredibly funny, but he also presented rapid fire, a huge amount of great information about the numbers behind student loans. In fact, you know, he went as far as saying that, you know, you either pay off your student loans as fast as you're possible or you don't, but there's no in between. And he went through all the math and why that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I pretty much enjoyed everyone's talk. It was great hanging out with Julian and Kirsten. I am not big on the minimalist movement, but Rose Lounsbury was there too. Mm-hmm. And she was really enlightening on the minimalism movement and how it plays a role. And there's a natural fit with financial independence and minimalism. Mm -hmm. And it was nice to see her at the event. She gave a fantastic talk, as did everyone else. I really enjoyed Jackie's talk. She brought her daughter along too. So if you know some of Jackie's content, she talks a lot about teaching her daughter and the letter she wrote to her daughter. And so to see her daughter there as she was up on stage giving this talk uh, was just a really proud moment, at least for me watching on. And I will definitely remember those things from the Economy Conference. So wrap it up for us. If someone's thinking about going next year, because Diana has said there's going to be one next year, what would you tell them? I would tell them absolutely go. (laughs) Rack up your points right now (laughs) so you can get your flight there. Uh, There's a travel hacking break-off session. So if you want to learn about that, that'll be there. And there's nothing like being around people who are like-minded, especially on a path that to the average person seems really difficult. You really find your people and you find some motivation. Like even for me, I felt like the last few months, I just kind of wanted to spend more, wanted to treat myself, you know, and 
I got there and I was like, I don't need that. Like the things that make me happy are not stuff. Like, even like you said, I'm not really into minimalism either, but just that conversation about like, what's enough, you know, and do I ever stop and think, do I have enough? Is this enough? Am I enough? Uh, Or am I just buying things because I feel like I'm not enough until I have those things. And then that just deters my plan, right? So it was a nice wake up call and a great opportunity to meet people that I interact with a lot online. So I would definitely recommend going. Conferences like this are a great reminder because out in the rest of the world, maybe we're looking at blogs and listening to podcasts, but we're not talking or thinking about these things all the time. And it's really easy to start cutting corners and to start doing all the things that you told yourself you didn't want to do, but you get tired and you get busy and you stop thinking about it. So if you go to a conference like this once a year, once every six months, it's that reminder and it sticks with you. And I think a lot of us benefit from having those occasional reminders getting us back on the wagon, so to speak, if that's the correct term, you know, getting us engaged and back into what we believe in. So tell us where can we find you and what's up next in your life? I am on Twitter as Almost Brenda. That's A-L-M-O-S-T Brenda. And I am figuring out what my financial plan looks like as I start a PhD in the fall. So I'm crunching numbers and figuring out what my priorities are going to be in the next three to four years. Well, congratulations on the PhD program. I hope to catch up with you at another conference, meetup, or get-together in the near future. And thanks for coming on to talk about the Economy Conference. No problem. Thank you. like this idea of both your and Alan Alan's podcast being together because in a lot of ways, Alan was definitely a real mindset conversation. Mm-hmm. And your conversation is not that you couldn't have had that, not that we couldn't have had that mindset conversation too, but yours is much more, okay, here's where we go from here. And I'm glad I like listened to Alan's podcast like with you before um, we recorded. So like, I knew what he had talked about already. I was like, okay, I don't really want to like say the same things over and over again. So Let's make sure, yeah, we carry on from that conversation and add value. Yeah, and I tried to specifically steer away from, so I hope you don't mind, but that was part of my process too, is I wanted to get more specifics of how do we actually do this? Whereas Alan was more kind of like, why and how do we get over this fear of it? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.